Hello and welcome to The Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Zania Jarvis and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads and everything in between. I'm interested in the stories behind the stories and the joy that books can bring, no matter what genre or style. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, but for the best experience, I really recommend using the new app Entail, which will allow you to look at exclusive pictures as we talk, click on links, even shop the books featured. It's truly amazing. My guest this week is Elizabeth Day, the award-winning author and journalist, and host of the brilliantly successful and totally riveting podcast, How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, in which she interviews the likes of Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Alistair Campbell, about the things that haven't gone right in life. Having published four novels, including the 2017 smash hit The Party, she has just released her fifth book, also called How to Fail. Part memoir, part mediation on the power of failure, like everything Elizabeth produces, it's beautifully written and sharply observed, but also so honest and true. I absolutely loved it. So Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you for coming along today. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for my <laughs> lovely introduction. You're so welcome. Thank you for reading the book as well. Oh, no. I mean, it was such a pleasure. Also, I just wouldn't do this without reading the <laughs> <laughs> That would be a terrible dereliction of duty. Uh, but it's it's brilliant. Congratulations. Thank you. It's lovely to hear because we're recording this before the book's actually been published. I don't yeah. know if I'm allowed to draw back no, the curtain. No, you can <laughs> reveal but, the but secret. It means that um, I, very few people have actually read it. So it's always really nice when someone has and says nice things. It's very reassuring. Yeah, it's it, it's great. Um, but talking of, of, of the book and, and the title, um, you're so successful. So it might be surprising to someone... Uh, that you've written a memoir called How to Fail. So tell me about that. Well, thank you very much for the compliment. That's very kind of you, um, because I think everyone would say that they don't necessarily feel how they appear to the outside Mm. world. So I I, I can acknowledge that some things I have done have been successful, Mm. but I don't think I'm necessarily wildly successful. And what I mean by that is that I go through periods of insecurity and self-doubt like the vast majority of the population. Mm. And whilst I've had certain professional successes, I feel that they have been bolstered in a way by long periods of time where I didn't feel I was succeeding, where I felt Mm. that I was losing my way or where I felt that I was writing books that not very many people were reading. So Mm. when, as you mentioned in your introduction, the party became an Amazon bestseller and it was a Richard and Judy book club pick that was an amazing thing for me and Mm. it was so wonderful and I was so grateful for it but I could appreciate it all the more because that hadn't happened before so it hadn't felt successful up to that point and then this thing happened and everyone said oh it's such a success you're like yes I can sort of acknowledge that objectively but internally it doesn't always feel like that and I would say that professionally I've been very lucky and I've worked very hard. So I have now written five books. So that Mm. by any metric is a form of success. Mm. But personally, I have had a lot of failures in my life that I speak about very openly, both on the podcast and in the memoir. Mm. And so I'm not where I thought I would be at this age in my life. So I'm now 40, still feels weird to say that. (laughs) And I'm not as I thought I would be married with children. 
And I don't live in a nice house. I live in a lovely rented flat and I have a long-term boyfriend, but I've gone through various fertility issues and it's probably likely that I won't have my own biological child. Mm. So that has all felt like a sort of failure. But the message of both my book and the podcast, as you know, is that from failures, you actually learn so much more about yourself and Mm. they end up becoming their own versions of success. Mm. So... Um, that was a long-winded answer and I've got no handy punchline, but that's how I feel. (laughs) Um, You mentioned there that you uh, talk about these things openly on the podcast and in the book. Um, Is it difficult writing about difficult experiences? I mean, when you write about your experience of IVF and of infertility and the breakdown of your first marriage, those are incredibly moving sections of the book. Were they difficult to write? Interestingly... They weren't difficult in the sense that the words came very, very easily. I think particularly with the chapter where I write about failing at babies, I had waited, it felt as if I had waited for so long to have the space to say everything I wanted to say about that Mm. in my own words without there being a word limit imposed by a magazine editor. Mm. Um, I've touched on bits of my personal experience before for journalism pieces, but this was the first time where it was literally me and the book that I wanted to write. Mm. And I felt I was writing that chapter for loads of women like me going through fertility issues, facing a future possibly without biological children and really grappling with the stuff that I was grappling with and that I really yearned for someone to tell me at the time. And mm. there was no literature that I could find at the time that I was going through IVF. There were loads and loads of mother and baby books, but there was hardly anything on the actual process of IVF and what it might feel like. Mm. Um, at the end of my marriage, that chapter was harder to write. Um, the reason it was harder to write is because a marriage by its nature involves two people. Mm. And I was extremely careful to talk just about my own version of events and my own story because I didn't want to involve my ex. And that was a balancing process because I think my natural inclination is to be really, really honest. But there are times when I cannot be honest because it involves other people who aren't writing the book. Mm. So I'm very clear that I tell my story and my story alone. And wherever I mention friends in the book, I mentioned them by name, but I've checked with every single one of them that they're okay with that. And gratifyingly, they all said that they were. But otherwise, I've changed identities or I just simply haven't mentioned the other person's input or story because I feel that that's exploitative. Yeah. You also write about therapy and how helpful it's been. And I found that really interesting, particularly when reading the book, because you're... uh, you're so emotionally intelligent and you're so good at breaking down these situations and you're very self-aware. And is that something that therapy has helped with? And and also, has it helped with you, your writing? Such a good question. And the short answer is yes, absolutely. I was very aware when I was writing the book that I didn't want to just, I didn't want to talk about therapy too much because I'm aware that I'm extremely privileged to be talking about failure. Mm. I am white, I'm middle class, I own a laptop. I've got a university education and I can pay my rent. Like these are all things that put me in the top 1% of the global population. I'm very aware of that. I cannot speak with any certainty and it would be patronizing to attempt to do so about what it is to live with a chronic disease, uh, uh, to live as an amputee, to live as a person of color. Like I I haven't experienced that. Mm. And I was aware that when I was talking about therapy that could come across unless I was careful as 
a, a, a symptom of my privilege. Mm. And I'm I'm extremely cognizant of the fact that not everyone can afford therapy, number one, and that NHS waiting lists are incredibly long. Mm. Um, but for me, given that I am lucky enough to have been able to afford it, it has been a phenomenal thing in my life because I am able in my weekly sessions, I go still, to really analyse why I'm feeling a certain way. And in the past, when I couldn't come up with a reason for why I was feeling the way I was feeling, I would feel impotent and frustrated and angry and sad. Mm. And there's something about, as a writer of stories, I find it enormously helpful coming up with a narrative that can explain to me why I might be reacting in a certain way. Mm. It's had an enormously positive impact on my personal relationships. Mm. Um, And I have found it very useful in writing as well. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I've always been fascinated, even before therapy, I've been extremely fascinated about what makes people tick and about Mm. people's family dynamics. Mm. But I do think therapy has equipped me with tools to ask certain questions in a certain way. And... My best friend, Emma, who I also talk about a lot in the book, is a, th- a psychotherapist. Um, so, which is the best combination yeah, for one of your closest friends. Yeah, dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've learned a lot from her. One of the things that I really vividly remember learning from her is about masking emotions. And I write a whole chapter on failing at anger in the book. And I realised that for years I had thought I was sad, but actually it was a masking emotion that was easier for me to digest and easier for society to accept, to Mm. say that I was sad rather than to say, actually, I'm really, really fucking furious about that. Mm. And I'm furious that you did that to me and I need to acknowledge that and come Mm. face to face to it. So that's one of the things that I've learned through therapy. You said just now that you have always been someone who's fascinated by the dynamics of family situations. You've always been an observer. When can you remember that first kicking in and manifesting itself as as the desire to write? Well, I remember aged four wanting to be a writer. Mm. And I think it's because I was surrounded by books and I loved books and mm. my parents read me stories. And I'm very grateful for that. And I think when I was four, something else very important happened, which was that my family moved to Northern Ireland. Yeah. And looking back, that was very uprooting mm. because I've always spoken with an extremely English accent, as you can hear. And so when I went to Ireland, it was the first time that I didn't seamlessly fit in to mm. where I was living. And when I went to secondary school, I noticed myself becoming more and more quiet and more and more of an observer rather Mm. than a speaker because I didn't want people to judge me for how I sounded Mm. so I remember that happening and I'm trying to think about when it would have manifested in writing but I was I was writing from a very young age so age seven I remember writing the adventures of someone I called Daisy Day (laughs) (laughs) Um, because I always thought it'd be quite cool with my surname to be called Daisy Um, and that was about her scrapes and the adventures that she got into. I think one of my formative influences was My Naughty Little Sister, those oh, terrific I books. That, I yeah. love those books. And Anne of Green Gables, I absolutely yes. loved as well. So Amazing. I was really interested in like misbehaving children and like feisty girls. Mm. But uh, The Adventures of Daisy Day was obviously set in a family dynamic. So there would be sort of walk-on parts from her parents and stuff. Mm. And... Um, and then I also remember Tom and Jerry cartoons always being fascinated by the women's feet. I don't know if you remember, but they 
they never really showed the full human. They only showed it from a cat and mouse perspective, which is the genius thing. And actually, like the, it's the kernel of truth in all storytelling is that sort of perspectival spectrum. Yeah. So you're just seeing the world from Tom and Jerry's eyes. And so you only ever see this woman's feet. <laughs> but there's a hint there of what's going on beyond in the household. And that always really intrigued me as a child. That's so fascinating. I'd never considered that. <laughs> <laughs> you, I'm going to watch them in a whole new night. It's the first time I've actually ever said that out loud, Alice. So like, it's a great question. And you, you started writing a column at, at 12 mm. uh, for the Derry Journal. How did that come about? I sound like such a precocious twat. <laughs> like, I was just interested in perspectival narratives. Uh, yes, so that came about because I knew that I wanted to be a writer. And um, at around age 11, there was a health farm down the road from where we lived in Northern mm. Ireland. And it was run by friends of my parents. And Alfie, who ran that farm, called up my dad one day and was like, I know Elizabeth wants to write and I've got a real life journalist staying with me. Does she want to meet her? <laughs> and so I went to meet Linda Gilby is her name. And I still remember her. She sadly passed away now. But she used to work for Sunday Life newspaper in Belfast. And she said to me, she gave me one of the best piece of advice I've ever had, which was, if you want to be a journalist or a writer, start right now. There mm. is no point putting it off and thinking, this is what I eventually want to become. You can be it now. And it really inspired me to start getting loads of work experience. And it inspired me to write to every single local newspaper editor and ask that they have a children's column mm. and I would write it. And one editor Which is got... a good idea. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one editor got back to me. His name was Pat McCart and he edited the Derry Journal and I had a meeting with him to which my mother had to drive me because I was so young. <laughs> and he was such a lovely man. He was like, I like this idea. Yes, you can have a column. And it started when I was 12 and it was a fortnightly column. And um, my first one was about Kylie and Jason and how they were dominating the charts and whether this was a good thing and whether <laughs> Australian soap stars should really be allowed to release music. I was extremely opinionated as a 12-year-old. It was very funny. Um, and then you became a gossip columnist. Uh, I mean, there was a, a few a few years in between, but you, you worked on London's Diary. Uh, I've also been a gossip columnist. You must have had some amazing experiences. Can you tell me about that? Yes, it's such a surreal job, isn't it? It's um, I was fresh out of university and I joined the, the Londoners' Diary on the Evening Standard and it it was a job requirement, quite literally, for me to go out every single night to these fabulous parties. But I didn't ever know anyone, so it's a slightly strange combination. Like, I would, I would recognise celebrities, but I would only ever go on my own and it's mm. quite terrifying as well. But the ones that I can remember, I went to the Lord of the Rings premiere for the first Lord of the Rings film and that was insane. It was like Billingsgate Fish Market. I think they'd taken over a whole area there. And there was Orlando Bloom in one corner and the it girl of the day, Lady Victoria Harvey in the other. And then there were all these like fire-breathing little people who, and, um, who were rushing around and sort of green-tinged canapes. And uh, it was just completely bizarre. And then I would go from that party back to my house share in Clapham and not have very much sleep and then go into work the next day. And the other thing that I did was I went to the Cannes Film Festival for the Londoners' Diary to cover it. Um, Film 4 were kind enough to take me out and I met Stephen Fry and mm. I partied on a yacht and um, that was all incredibly surreal and also I'm glad I did it but I'm glad that it only lasted for a year. Mm. It's interesting because you've written that you are an introvert. How in that sort of situation did you steal yourself to approach people and to, to kind of 
chase the story and ask the questions. Yeah, that was an extremely formative period of my life for that because Mm. I am a natural introvert in that I need to replenish my energy by being on my own. Mm. But the Londoner's Diary really did teach me that you can put on a front and you can pretend to be confident Mm. and people will often believe that. Mm. And that the more you pretend, the more you end up building an emotional muscle. Mm. And so then it becomes an automatic reflex. And Mm. it was great training in the same way as eating food that you dislike, but being, I mean, this has never happened to me, but it happened to my grandmother, actually. She was forced to eat a bowl of spinach when she was a young girl. She hated Mm. spinach. And after that, she could always eat it. And it was a bit like immersion therapy. Mm. So the, the way I would steal myself is, first of all, to remember my mother always saying to me, no one is looking at you as much as you think they are. Because as a teenage girl, you're just so hyper self-conscious. And I remember her saying that to me. Secondly, I would have like a glass of champagne in one hand and I would stand a- against a wall looking as if I were waiting for someone to come and meet me. And um, so looking as if I had sort of had something to do mm. and trying to pretend that I did. And then when I would spot a celebrity, I would just think... I need to do this now. And if I can do it now, then I can go home earlier. Yeah. And I always had one question up my sleeve that I would go in and ask. And I, my approach was always to be very upfront and just be like, hello, I'm Elizabeth. I'm from the Londoner's Diary rather Mm. than try and pretend it was like a natural conversation. Yeah. And the vast majority of people responded really well to that. And then were really nice to me because I was there on my own. Mm. But my fail safe question uh, was always, who do you think is going to be the next James Bond? Because everyone in Britain is completely obsessed with yeah, James Bond. It's always going to be a headline. And there's always going to be a headline, exactly. Yeah. So that was my my fail-safe one. And then you went on uh, to be a feature writer at The Observer, um, where you interviewed all sorts of famous people. Uh, but you went freelance. What was behind the decision to go freelance? Because it's, it's quite a big leap to take. Yeah. It was a number of things, actually. Uh, one of them was was that I was writing novels. So mm. I was on staff at The Observer for my first three novels, which I would write genuinely in lunch breaks and at weekends. Mm. And um, here and there, I take a week off. But that was a pretty hectic pace of work. And I remember my friend Viv saying to me, if you want to be taken seriously as a novelist, you need to start taking yourself seriously as a novelist. Mm. And I felt that it was possibly unhelpful for me for how I was viewed in the outside world if I was attached as a member of staff on one newspaper Mm. when actually I wanted to be able to be giving more of my time and be mistress of my schedule so that I could give more of my time to writing books. So that was Mm. one reason. The other reason was was that I was at The Observer for eight years and during those eight years, I all of my personal crises happened. So my marriage broke down. I had unsuccessful IVF. It was it was a really in many ways it was a very dark time, and uh, I felt that at the Observer I was slightly losing myself, mm. and that I was surrounded by these fantastic feature writers who I'd grown up admiring, and I'd never felt as good as them. Mm. And at the same time, I was desperate to try and be as good as them. So I would say yes to any piece of work that I was offered, mm. which meant I was often overworked and often got the stuff that no one else really wanted to get. And mm. so in my head, I didn't feel taken as seriously either at The Observer. And it all came to a head when um, off the back of my marriage ending, I went to live in L.A. for three months. And The Observer, to their credit, said that they would support that. Um, Mm. I I paid my airfare and my accommodation. But I was like, 
I'll just do my feature writer job there and it'll be great for you because I can go to junket interviews and they got behind that idea and I loved LA so much and I came back and I asked to return to LA but to go on contract at the Observer Mm. and uh, they refused to let that happen and in a way it was very helpful to me because I was like oh I if I can't do that then I don't want to do this and it was quite instinctive. I was like, I've just got to leave. If I don't leave now, I will be doing the same thing at The Observer for the next 25 years. And I wanted to challenge myself and to progress. And so I handed in my notice and I didn't have any job to go to. And I was like, hopefully I'll make it as a freelance. But it was terrifying. Mm. But it was also so adrenalizing. I was so energized by it. It felt incredible to be in charge of my own future. Mm. And that first year of freelance, I said yes to everything in the same way as I said yes to everything in The Observer, but the crucial difference was I saw the result on my bank balance and Mm. I could attach every yes to a recognisable piece of work, to a recognisable piece of salary, and that was paying my rent. And that was so empowering. So empowering, exactly. Mm. And it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Because sure enough, the next novel I wrote did get taken more seriously, Mm. and that was The Party. Mm. Just rewinding to when you were first uh, writing novels, what made you start Scissors, Paper, Stone, what was the, when you were working as a journalist, what made you commit to writing fiction? I had always wanted to write novels um, from a very young age and I saw journalism as my way of training myself in in writing Mm. and uh, I do think writing is as much a craft as it is an art and it's very Mm. helpful actually as an author of fiction to know how to meet deadlines and to just have to bash things out. (laughs) Um, So I knew in the back of my mind I wanted to write a novel and I'd had several false starts in my 20s. Um, I'm sure many people will relate to this, where you sit down and you think, I'm going to write an epoch-defining novel. (laughs) And you put in all of your thoughts and all of your adjectives and it turns out to be absolutely terrible. So I had a number of those false starts. And then I was 29 and it was partly because I felt a bit lost at The Observer Um, And it was partly because they said to me that I didn't always have to be in the office, so I could work from home sometimes. And I was so used to working in office that I used to get up early, do all my work, be really motivated, and then I'd be free in the afternoons. And I'd think, Mm. what do I do with myself? I was like, oh, maybe I could start, try try some fiction. And um, that was the initial impetus. And then I almost allowed myself not to have a clue of where I was going. So I didn't start with a very clear plan for Scissors, Paper, Stone. Mm. I started with a single voice, which was the voice of this woman who was in an unhappy marriage and who found herself at the bedside of her husband who is in a coma. And I didn't really know where it was gonna go from there, but starting with that voice was enough. And once I'd written 5,000 words, I wanted to write more because I wanted to see where it was going. And that's how it became a novel. And it was published in 2012 and it it won the Betty Trask Award. Um, And that is a huge triumph in and of itself. And yet you write that you had these mixed feelings um, about the level of success you'd achieved with it. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so the Betty Trask Award was wonderful and it was so incredible to win that. But that actually happened, I think it was a year after it was published. Mm. So there was quite a time lag. And the first two reviews I got for Scissors, Paper, Stone were absolute stinkers. (laughs) And that's um, a very exposing experience because Mm. you publish your first novel 
it's come out, it's in bookshops. You, you def- I felt a definite sense of like a childhood dream having been fulfilled, which is a very powerful thing. And all around you, your friends are saying, oh, how wonderful, congratulations, what a success, how's it selling? <laughs> and then to get the first two reviews and they're like horrible. One of them was in the Evening Standard. I have never forgotten the name of the person who wrote it um, and compared me unfavorably to Zoe Heller, which is fair enough because I, Zoe Heller's absolutely brilliant, but I had never gone out to be Zoe Heller. Mm. So it also seemed a bit unfair at the same time. <laughs> slightly random. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe you should concentrate on what the novel is rather than what it isn't. Uh, and then the second review was an Irish cultural discussion program where it was uh, three panelists and they all seemed to egg each other on to say ever more awful things about the book. And I was accused of like every first mistake a first time author could make and why didn't she have a better editor? And I remember watching it on my laptop, tears streaming down my face. Oh no. So that's that, and that was and, and that was tough, but it was also really good in that what it prompted me to do was to go out and to find out what other authors had experienced bad reviews and how mm. they'd cope with it. And Zoe Heller, sure enough, had terrible reviews for her first novel and mm. then went on to write Notes on a Scandal, which did incredibly well. And um, I always remember my friend Simon saying to me at the time, great art will provoke uh, big opinions. Mm. And people will either love what you do or hate it, but at least they're not mediocre about it. Like, at least they have a take on it. Mm. And it's not that I thought my novel was great art, but that was a very helpful thing to think. And so... It taught me a lot. And then I I got really nice reviews after that. And I don't think any review could ever be as bad in terms of the impact that it had on me right then again. So in a way, I'm glad that I've got those out of the, out of the way. Baptism by fire. Yes. And, it, and, you know, reviews are so subjective and opinion by its nature is subjective. Mm. And I'm very clear now because with How to Fail, it's the most exposing book I've ever written. It's the most personal because it is a memoir. I'm very clear that I need to have cornerstone people in my head. So the people that I trust and value and whose opinion really counts to me. And once I have them there, then the rest of it is noise. And sometimes it can be nice noise and sometimes it will be less nice noise. But as long as I have my people and they're telling me honestly what they think, then that's all I need. And and also the most important opinion is your own as an artist. Mm. You've really got to have faith in your own instinct. How are you feeling in the run up to How to Fail being being released? Because as you said, it's it's much more exposing than than your previous books. Are you nervous? I'm really nervous. I actually about three weeks ago felt extremely anxious and quite stressed about it. Mm. And then cliche alert, I took myself off to a yoga retreat. <laughs> but actually that it was great. And I came back from having had a few days away and having done a lot of reading of other people's work, including Diana Evans' Ordinary People. And yeah. I cannot wait to listen Previous to that. Previous podcast guest. Yeah. Yeah. Love that novel so much. And I came back from that and not only did I feel rested, but I also felt two things. My friend Nezreen said to me, how many people get the chance to write a memoir at our age mm. and to say what they want to say about their life? What a privilege. I was mm. like, that is so true. I'm very, very lucky that I have that platform. And secondly... Imagine the 10-year-old me, the one who wanted to be a journalist, who was writing these stories about Daisy Day, who went to meet that journalist at the health farm, who was about to get her column on a newspaper. Imagine her and how excited she would be at everything that's happening around it. And that has really helped me be appreciative and excited rather than just overly apprehensive. So I feel a mixture of all of those things, but mostly I feel really grateful. 
So as you mentioned earlier, the the memoir is um, it, it it comes off the back of the success of your brilliant podcast. Uh, how did you come up with the idea behind that? So um, I got dumped <laughs> in October 2017. After I got divorced, uh, I had a bit of like dating wilderness, and then I met someone and we had a serious relationship. But he was younger than I was, and we went out for two years, and he decided he wasn't ready hmm. to have babies, and that was devastating on multiple levels Mm. and so I was in quite a dark place myself in October 2017 because uh, I was approaching my 39th birthday and again I felt that I'd made different decisions about relationships off the back of my divorce and yet even this relationship hadn't worked and I took myself off to LA again which is a place that I go again and again to heal Mm. (laughs) Um, and I was in LA and I wasn't listening to music because it made me feel too sad So I was listening to a lot of podcasts Mm. and one of the podcasts I listened to was Where Should We Begin? The Mm. Esther Perel Mm. podcast, which is phenomenal. If you haven't heard it, it's um, a couple's counsellor and you're allowed to like listen into her therapy sessions. And I was also having conversations with great female friends of mine about heartbreak and about loss and what those things had taught us. And these two elements came together in my head. And I realised, looking back, that I had grown so much more from when things had gone wrong and I had learned so much more about who I was right now and what I wanted going forwards that, in a way, I was quite grateful for the things that hadn't worked out. Mm. And then I was also thinking, how wonderful would it be to open up these sorts of conversations that I'm having with my friends in the way that Esther Perel does and to make it a more public conversation about vulnerability And that was the genesis of it. And I didn't, honestly didn't have a clue what I was doing, but it was an idea that really kept niggling away at me. And another six months passed. And then I thought, oh no, I could do do it this way. And I could call it how to fail. And I could ask people for three instances of failure in their life and, and let's see what happens. And I got my first eight guests just from friends and contacts really. And I put it out there and it existed in exactly the format I wanted it to exist. And I genuinely felt if only two people listen to this, I will be okay with it because Mm. it is how I want it to be. And then the most amazing thing happened, which was that it connected with so many more people than Mm. I could ever have anticipated. And there's something so beautiful when that happens about realising that your vulnerability has spoken to many other people's vulnerabilities. And so I feel less alone and hopefully the people listening feel less alone and that's just a really beautiful thing when you realise that something personal has connected in a more universal way than you ever imagined. So it's been a really wonderful journey. Have you found that people, does it change how people interact with you on a day-to-day basis? Do you get people approaching you and telling you how much they love it? Oh, I can, God, I to love your fans. Um, <laughs> do you know, I actually, I'm, I, I'm, I'm astonished to say that I do have people coming up to me and... Um, claiming that they're fangirling me and I'm like I'm such a needy person I'm so thrilled (laughs) that you would use that word in this context um and it's really wonderful and it's it's often women in their 20s because one of the failures that many people talk about is failure of their 20s because it's such a difficult decade especially Mm. now with the pressure of social media and everything um and that's been really lovely because many of them have then discovered my books that way round Mm. so uh it's been a a total revelation and yes I do get people saying the loveliest things and I 
I'm really honoured by that. I also get people sharing their own stories with me. They'll email me or they'll message me and they are very, very moving sometimes, very moving. And that's a, a big thing and it's beautiful, but I'm aware of the responsibility that comes with it as well. Mm. Um, I don't get people... I don't get people oversharing any more than they usually would. I think uh, for whatever reason, possibly because I'm nosy and I ask lots of questions, generally people have opened up to me. Hmm. So, um, I, so I haven't noticed like at dinner parties. I mean, not that I go to dinner parties very much, but <laughs> I haven't noticed someone suddenly being like, oh, you do the podcast. Let me tell you all about this terrible thing that happened to me. In the same way that I can imagine happens if you're... Um, a podiatrist someone's like oh I've got an ingrown toenail that happened. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you how do you go about lining up your sort of range of guests oh my goodness that's the most time-consuming bit actually mm. because um I'm I know the kind of people that I'd like to get who are people that I admire or people that I think have fascinating stories to tell or in the case of for instance Tara Westover who wrote the memoir educated mm. i read her book and was so blown away by it that i emailed her publicist and i just you know found the details online i was like if there's anything i can do, if i can ever interview her let me know and that's how that came about um and now i'm at the stage where sometimes publicists are approaching me which is great um it's not always the perfect fit i don't feel because mm. i'm very aware that they i need to have a diversity of stories mm. and i don't always get that right because you will be looking at diversity in one way and then there are a myriad other ways looking at it. So there was one season where I had a lot of people who'd gone to Oxbridge and I hadn't actually realised that until Mm. we got to the interview and we were recording it. And some listeners, right, like a couple of listeners, quite rightly pointed out, you know, if it's skewed this heavily in favour of like privately educated people and people go to Oxbridge, that's Mm. not really an accurate representation which is absolutely true. So whenever someone says something like that to me, I really go away and try harder. So uh, the next season has a a diversity of educational background as well as a diversity of experience as well. And, you know, I'm very aware of that. I I want to have a diversity of age. I want to have people of colour. But but the one marker is that I've, I've been asked in the past about why I only have successful people on. And I put successful in quotation marks. And actually... I I have people on because I think that it is important that we realise that success doesn't always feel like success to the person experiencing mm. it. And that someone that you've admired from afar might have gone through terrible things to get there. Mm. And the fact that they've triumphed over those or they've learned from them can be a very aspirational thing. And, and that's why I do it that particular way. And there might be scope for a podcast that interviews people in the grip of current failure. But it's just that that's the remit I set myself for this particular podcast. What do you think makes a good interviewer? Uh, listening. Mm. You're very good at that, Alice. Um, <laughs> you, no, you are. Um, listening and, and, and having enough confidence in what you're doing that you can leave a pause here and there. That's one of the hardest things, to leave a silence. Mm. But sometimes that's when the biggest revelations will come. Mm because sometimes someone is just thinking about how best to express something. Um, So I think as opposed to, it's difficult because as a newspaper or magazine interviewer, I go into an interview encounter and I know that my editor wants me to ask a whole list of questions. And Mm. quite often that list will include the question that you know, without doubt, Mm. the celebrity will absolutely hate having to answer. Mm. So you're having to like 
balance that with the need to make it seem like a natural conversation with the need to make the person feel comfortable in your company when you've only just met and sometimes you only have 20 minutes of time and that's quite a subtle art but for me the the best interviews are ones that are allowed to go on their own journeys Mm. so that you can ask a question and then you have enough time to follow up with the thing that interests you Mm. from having listened very carefully to what that person has said so uh i think listening really is my top tip and i do go in with a list of questions um but i also think it's great to be able to give yourself the freedom not to just be hidebound by them have you had any disastrous encounters? Not on the podcast. The podcast has no. been an absolute joy. No, yeah. And and actually the reason I love the podcast is because I am at liberty to take the interview wherever I want it to go. Mm. But yeah, in, in newspaper and magazine terms, yes, I have. Uh, Rob Lowe walked out of an interview that I did with him 40 minutes in. <laughs> and I'd flown to Toronto to interview him. And I had the temerity to ask him a question about whether he found it difficult to trust people. And he didn't... He summoned his his publicist. His publicist shut the interview down and <laughs> he walked out and I was like, what do I do with 40 minutes of material? It was a nightmare. Um, and I didn't love Paolo Coelho. He <laughs> <laughs> wrote The Alchemist. I hope he's not listening. But I found him... It's so interesting because so many people see him as a spiritual guru, but he just struck me as a monstrous egomaniac. He told me this anecdote about how he had stopped a flight from taking off from Brazil to London because he had wanted a cigarette. He was like, I want to smoke a cigarette. And the air hostess was like, well, you're on an airplane and you're not allowed (laughs) to smoke on an airplane. He's like, well, we haven't taken off yet. She's like, but you can't smoke like in the airplane. And he insisted that they waited for him while he got off the airplane onto the tarmac, had the cigarette and then got back on, which meant that he delayed the whole flight. Now, for me, that's not the sign of someone who is a spiritual guru. <laughs> and it was just so unexpected. Uh, so I, I found him a slightly tricky character. Maybe you could invite them both on the podcast. And <gasps> Terrifying. Relive it all. Oh, my Get gosh. your revenge. Get your revenge. Um, we're actually running out of time, which is really sad because I don't want to let you go. But before I do wrap up... Uh, you're obviously really busy with How to Fail at the moment. What what else do you have on the horizon? What are you looking forward to for the rest of the year? I've got a couple of live events for How to Fail, which I'm really excited about. Um, basically, I'm taking the podcast live into these arenas where people can come and hear me pontificate about what I've learned from failure, but also interview an incredible guest. And then there's a Q&A session at the end. So I'm really excited about that because I've never done it in quite that format before. Yeah. Um, and then I've got uh, a series of sort of literary festival things that I'm doing. And I'm really looking forward just personally to going back to LA, which I'm doing in August. And then I'm going to spend Christmas there, which I'm thrilled about because it'll be like a sunny Christmas. Mm. And I'm writing a new novel. So I am halfway through a new novel, which I actually started before the podcast uh, kicked off. Um, and I'm now just getting to the stage where I'm sort of revisiting it and continuing to write it. So, uh, yeah, I'm about halfway through that. And that is about a ghostwriter who uncovers the secret past of a legendary Hollywood film director. Oh, that's so interesting. You've done some ghostwriting, haven't you? Yes, I have. And I was like, I've got all this material that I can that I could use. So I um, 
worked with Gina Miller on her memoir Rise mm. and it was a fascinating experience partly mm. because I think she's just a hero of a woman yeah she's amazing she's the political activist who took the government to court over the triggering of article 50 and she campaigns against Brexit still and um, partly because the the rigmarole of it was just so entertaining mm. uh, it, it's sort of it's it, amazing thing to go and like to go Press, on, press someone's doorbell, be allowed in, sit in their front room, ask them these incredibly intimate questions about their entire life and talk their life out of them mm. and then put that onto the page in their voice. Mm. I mean, that it's it was an extraordinary process and I really wanted to write about just the process itself. And my final question, which I ask everyone, which is if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self or to any aspiring author or aspiring journalist listening what would it be my one piece of advice to my younger self would be to worry less (laughs) because I do think that the universe is unfolding exactly as is intended and my one piece of advice to younger or aspiring writers is to get on with the writing because I think that we can put ourselves off with our own internal critics and we can tell ourselves that we're never going to be as good as our favourite writers or we're never going to be as original as we think we must be. But the one thing that you have that is utterly unique is your voice and your experience and that's all you need. And writing is as much about getting words on the page as it is about having the ideas and the inspiration. So just the act of doing it means that you're doing it. That's fantastic advice and a wonderful note to end on. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming along. It's been such a joy talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely. And to everybody listening, How to Fail, everything I've ever learned from things going wrong is out now. So that's it from us. Thank you so much for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Azania. And more importantly, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate or review it. It really helps other people find it and its position in the charts. So until next week, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.